Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may all be seated. So we're about to go into the second week of Advent as we await the coming of our Savior. And for those who are part of Old Testament theology, you probably are not surprised of me utilizing this passage to speak on Advent. But for those of you who are not part of that class, you might think this is a very odd passage to speak of when thinking about Advent, the coming of Jesus Christ. I'd like to look at this passage and explore a few observations about it that I hope you'll see does very much so speak about the coming of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. I'm going to look at three focal points. The first is the need for a Savior in verses 8 through 13. And second, the promise of a Savior in verse 15. And then lastly, the suffering of a Savior in the latter part of verse 15. So first look at the need for a Savior. I want to provide a little bit of context. Uh, Many of you know this story. This is not an unfamiliar story to most of you. God has placed Adam and Eve in the garden And he's done so not withholding anything from them. Really, they are able to enjoy the whole garden. There was only one tree that they could not eat from. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a testing tree. It was a tree that would determine whether they ultimately trusted in God and depended on him or whether they trusted in themselves. And I think... We all know how this turns out. Moving forward from Adam and Eve, you can see how this plays out even in the most simplest of illustrations and ideas. This Christmas, imagine you have two children and you give one many different gifts of all different shapes and sizes and colors and lights and sounds. The other, you don't give as many gifts. In fact, you only give one. But that one gift is a very unique gift. It's, it's specifically chosen for that child. So one gift has 
Uh, one child has everything. One child has one thing, but that one thing is so unique and different. You can imagine that one child really covered up to their armpits in gifts. And as they're opening all their gifts, they suddenly look over and see that other child with that one very different gift. What do you think happens at that moment? Well, I can imagine that child stopping opening their gifts and just staring and looking. And then suddenly she looks and sees the gift that her brother has, this special gift. And then all of those gifts around just don't seem that special. That There's there's nothing about it. And so she starts making her way over towards her brother, gleaming with envy. Paul describes this same heart in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It really is an enslavement. It's controlling. And we can't stop ourselves from yielding to our pleasures and desires, according to Paul. In fact, we know this plays out to death in the very next chapter in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 4, where Cain looks and out of envy grows anger, and out of anger literally grows murder. So we can see that when we do not have everything, and we look not to God, but look to ourselves, that envy is deadly to our souls and actually also to those around us. If there is ever a need for a savior, it is this insatiable desire to find our satisfaction and delight in something or someone other than God that causes us to actually need a savior. So we also know according to our story, that this leads to something terrible. We see this in verses 9 through 10. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. When I read this part of the story, I can imagine Adam caught in his sin, caught and suddenly there's that sense of vulnerability. I don't know if you've ever been caught in sin before. I mean, think throughout your life. Have you ever been caught lying, stealing, cheating? It's quite frightening, actually. What's your first instinct when you're caught, when a parent, a teacher, someone of authority looks at you and has discovered what you have done? Isn't it to notice the, the bareness the vulnerability of your heart. In a sense, in that moment, you are naked. In that moment, your shame is there for others to see. And there's this stark reality of nakedness. Because with nakedness, there's nowhere to hide. Everything about you is fully known and fully realized. And so when Adam and Eve sinned against God and they were caught... They bore more resemblance to the naked serpent than they did to the God that they bore the image of. That's how stark that nakedness was. That's what sin had done. 
In this sense, Jesus calls the Pharisees the children of the devil because in every way they reminded God, the world, that they were so far independent of God that they looked more like Satan than they did God. And that's what Jesus refers to in John chapter 8. You're either a child of God or a child of the devil, meaning you either are trusting and wholly dependent on God or you're trusting and wholly dependent on something or someone else. That's Satan. And Satan, when we do so, when we depend on something, including ourselves, other than God, we look like we're the children of the devil. Jesus says that in John chapter 8. If we look then, when you discover that you are vulnerable, what's the next instinct? Hiding. Hiding is a result, a consequence of being made, being a person who has now for all the world to see vulnerable in their sin. And one way we hide is we lie. Lying is a means by which we hide. We hate the vulnerability. And so we try to escape by lying to making us not look as bad as we truly are, as faulty as we truly are. And then what's the next attempt after lying? Oftentimes it's what Adam does in verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So from lying goes blame shifting. Because both are attempts to hide from God and from our own sin. In one fell swoop, Adam blames God and Eve for his sin. This is really the essence of the darkness of sin and of the heart. It's so ridiculous that Adam, when caught in sin, goes before the omniscient God who had created Adam himself and tries to feebly blame shift God for what Adam had done. Consider verse 7. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That's the problem with hiding and then trying to figure things out. You, you come up with all sorts of strategies and plans that you think will get you out of the situation. But they're no better than trying to cover yourself with leaves. You know, the fig leaf was a very, very large leaf, but it's still a leaf. What's the problem with a leaf? They're not that thick. They rot. They break. They fade away. It actually doesn't cover anything. But in your mind, it does. In your mind, you think, if I lie and blame shift my way out of this situation, everything will be okay. But it never is okay. Leaves are not covering. Notice also, they made themselves. They made themselves loincloths. They tried to save themselves, fix themselves deal with their own shame and guilt themselves. And oh, how woefully short that would be. It would never work. I want to give two examples from Scripture that gives people who have been caught in sin. Really, two kings. The, kings, the first two kings of Israel. The first, Saul. Saul was caught red-handed by Samuel for disobeying God. 
One thing Saul was never to do was to act as a priest. And yet that's exactly what he tried to do. He tried to, because Samuel had not come to offer sacrifices, Saul decided to do it himself. Also, Saul was to obey God and trust him. And he was supposed to wipe out the Amalekites, but he does not. Instead, he, he takes a bunch of sheep for himself. And, and when he's caught red-handed, we hear Saul's response when Samuel confronts him. And Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of, Am- uh, king of Amalek. And I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, but the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. What does Saul do? He blames the people. And then he makes it seem like this is for God. I'm going to sacrifice all this. And that's where God says those famous words through Samuel, to obey is better than sacrifice. Notice what Saul is doing. He is hiding. He's no different than Adam. In fact, he's the forebearer of Adam. He, he follows Adam's pattern, much like we all do. And that hiding and blame shifting and trying to cheat and deceive and lie his way out of this circumstance does nothing at all, but really closes his heart even further from God. There's another king of Israel, the second king, who also sinned gravely against God, who did terrible things and arguably, at least in some respect, perhaps worse than even Saul. You know the story where David tells, uh, Nathan is confronting David, the prophet, tells the story, the parable. And after David wrongly gets the idea of who Nathan's parable is about, Nathan closes that parable with this statement, you are the man. Remember that statement? You are the man. And listen to how David responds in 2 Samuel twelve thirteen. I have sinned against the Lord. I mean, it's a very, very straightforward, basic statement. That's all he said, actually. You know, there's, you notice there's no equivocation. No other response, just I have sinned against the Lord. We get a little bit of a a bigger picture of it when we read David's later response in Psalm 51, 10 through 12. Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing heart. David cares more about losing his relationship to God than anything else. Saul cared about his reputation and how he looked before people. David was most concerned about whether God would leave him or not. And we see the distinction between the two. two. Unlike Saul, David wouldn't trust in himself to get out of this situation. He would depend on God to save. So how does he do it? God has to act first and foremost, and he has to be gracious in his acting as he always does. And he has to be the one who saves. We see this happening in our, in our passage today in Genesis. 
We see this especially in verse 15a. It says, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You know, I've read this passage many times, studied it, preached on it before, but it wasn't actually until this class that I realized that where uh, we see how gracious a word this is, how kind and compassionate God is, how merciful he is. This is in the middle of a curse, so you don't tend to think of curses as gracious. But this is God's grace because, first of all, God could have easily have wiped them off the face of the earth and said, you know what? I'm good. I don't need them. (laughs) The triune Godhead was absolutely content. God the Father, Son, and Spirit did not need Adam and Eve me and you to be happy. He is eternally happy within himself. So we know, first of all, that God could have wiped them out. We also see that God had a plan of salvation, the promise of a savior. Satan will not have the last word. I love the way biblical commentator Meredith Klein puts it. He says, God would wrest the prey from the serpent's coils. The alliance Satan had secured with man, and with it the mastery over mankind, would not stand. God would overturn it, turning friendship into enmity. That last line is really stark. What he's saying is that at this point of the picture, Adam and Eve had closer ties with Satan than with their creator. They had friendship with Satan and enmity toward God. And what God would do graciously is he would turn the tide, he would turn the tables on it and say, I'm going to create instead enmity towards the seed of the woman and Satan, and I'm going to bring friendship of these people who have rebelled against me back to me. This is grace. This is God's kindness. He doesn't wait for Adam and Eve to do anything. He acts. He moves. God has pronounced that forever there would be, until Satan is destroyed once and for all, there will be a forever battle between Satan and God's people. And humanity as God's image bearers will not simply give in to Satan's schemes. We've spent almost half a year talking about that truth from Ephesians chapter 6. So there is a battle. There is a fight. And we know that the seed of the woman, the eventual seed that we see, and if you notice the genealogies, especially in Luke, traces Jesus' genealogy all the way to Adam. Because Luke's making the point, God is faithful to his promises of grace. And so he is going to battle the enemy through his son. And through Christ, Satan, death, sin, will be lost forever and ever. The rest of the Bible follows this thread throughout history. We see this ongoing enmity between God's people and Satan. And Satan will not stop trying to destroy the seed of the woman because that's exactly what God said would happen here in Genesis chapter 3. Now I want to move forward to the birth narratives of the Gospels of Jesus. And the problem with those birth narratives is not the gospel narrative, but it's 
how we frame them in our minds. Because we are more influenced by fluffy hay and cute animals and shepherds and stars and wise men. We're more influenced by Charlie Brown's Christmas of this really quiet, gentle scene than we are of the stark reality of Genesis chapter 3. But let's think and consider Genesis chapter 3 because this is the promise of a war. A war that is going to be raged in the spiritual realm and that's going to be impacting human history. And Genesis 3, in fact, lays much more of the groundwork of this time period and what we're celebrating than anything that we see on television or on Christmas cards. We get the sense of the fierceness of this battle by King Herod's actions. And his attempt to wipe out Jesus by murdering a bunch of baby boys in Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, reflects more of what's happening in Genesis 3 than anything we see in a movie or have as, even as our scene, we try to paint this scene to give us some sort of a, a reminder of this season of festive feel. But you know what? If I could flip the camera around and if you could see what I'm seeing, people wearing masks, there's a coldness. There's struggles, there's fears, there's a sense of loneliness, despairing. I'm not saying we're all facing that right now. But what I am saying is that that is much more of a picture of Christmas than this. Except we don't want to put a bunch of scenes like that for you to see up here. Christmas is about the screams of those mothers who had their baby boys killed to try to wipe out the seed of the woman. Christmas is about the angels warning Joseph in a dream to take their newborn son and run and escape because someone is trying to kill this boy. Christmas is about um, Satan working to destroy God's people. Get rid of the idea of winged angels fluffing around, singing with choir voices, Christmas hymns. The angels, they were, as we see throughout the Bible, oftentimes destroyers. You know, they were powerful. Angels destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Angels coming and destroying and doing the work of fighting the enemy fighting his demons. So when the angels gather to sing around the throne of Christ, they do so to declare that Christ has won. He is the victorious king. He is the general, the leader, our captain. He is the one who is fighting battles for us. Do not think that Christmas is simply about eggnog and, you know, opening gifts and a bunch of presents and Garland around your Christmas trees singing nice Christmas carols. Do that and we miss the idea of this battle, this war that is raging. Because God is gracious in bringing about this war. He could have just decided no war. Remember when the angels declare in Luke 2.11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
the Savior, the Christ Messiah, who would destroy the serpent once for all, had come. And what has he come to do? He's come to crush the serpent's head. Jesus, the Savior, is the destroyer of the destroyer. My friends, never forget when we celebrate Christmas this season, we are celebrating not the birth of a baby. It's not Jesus' birthday. We are celebrating the coming of a rescuer, a conqueror, a king of kings. We are celebrating a cosmic military victory and the one who is undoing what the first Adam had done. He is the one all the world has been waiting for. In order for there to be peace, there has to be a war. But once the war happens, then the angels declare on earth peace. We can know God because of the Savior. We can know and are loved by him. We can come to him when we are troubled. We can come to him broken and weak and sinful and depraved. How do I know this to be true? Because of the second part of verse 15. Let's look what Moses records in verse 15b. He shall bruise. Other translations have the word crush your head. And you shall bruise or crush his heel. The seed of the woman, Jesus, will crush the head of the serpent. Every once in a while, George will send me some pictures um, of snakes that have their heads crushed. You might be thinking, well, why in the world is George sending you pictures of that? There are many stories, but it's amazing how when there's spiritual struggle in a village due to demonic activity, really, remarkably, there are snakes in that village. And when they crush the head of the snake and as they're praying, the snake comes out, they crush the head of the snake, and God just lifts by his power, the strongholds over that village. And so he sent me a few pictures where he'll show me, look at this crushed head. I don't think that's just some mythology or some fantasy. We're seeing in the Bible just this full reality of what it's like. When, when a snake has their head crushed, they are dead. They're completely destroyed. But look at the other side of this verse. He shall crush your head, your being Satan, he being Jesus, and you, Satan, shall crush Jesus' heel. What does that mean? It means that this isn't going to happen without pain, that the Savior is going to suffer. Satan will inflict pain on the seed of the woman. We can't move too quickly Beyond this, this Advent season, we're remembering not merely a baby being born. We're remembering a God who gave his son to suffer and die for us. And in Genesis 3, God knew in this point in redemptive human history, God knew his son would suffer for us, for me and for you. And he would suffer at the hands of Satan for us. My friends, that's called grace. Grace was an operation from the very beginning. Remember the nakedness of Adam and Eve as a result of their sin. We too stand naked because of our sin, riddled with guilt and shame. But our Father, through our beloved Jesus, he covers us. There's a story in the book of Ruth where Ruth goes to Boaz's threshing floor 
and Ruth says to Boaz, cover me. And that's a symbol, a sign where that man is going to protect. We see this right here, this covering, where our God comes and he covers them. He covers them with the sacrifice of animals. Shed blood is going to cover their nakedness, their sin, their rebellion. But even that animal sacrifice, which we see shadows of all throughout the Old Testament, will never be good enough. It will culminate, as the book of Hebrews tells us, it will culminate in a sacrifice once and for all. God the Son would sacrifice himself, cover us with his own blood, with the blood of God's Son. And through that, we will be freed from sin and guilt and shame and fear and despair and suffering and tears and sorrows forever and ever. Christmas is this season. It's a season to remember the Father's great love for his people. May we never forget that. Let's pray together. Father, you are good to us. You are faithful. You are kind. If we should ever doubt that, help us to remember, oh Lord, this season. May we look at it not simply as a time of comfort due to gentle scenes, but help us to remember that there was a lot of bloodshed even on this night. But far more than the bloodshed physically, there is a spiritual battle that rages. We're so thankful. We know that the enemy has lost. His head has been crushed. The cross of Christ has declared victory once and for all. When Jesus rose from the grave, we too rise in him. And I pray that that would not just be something we think is some abstraction, but it is reality for us. And so every day of every moment when we hear news that perhaps in that moment makes our hearts sink, makes us doubt, makes us afraid, keeps us really wondering where we're going, what's going on in this world. We know that in Christ we have won. We know in Christ he has won. He has redeemed, he has delivered, and he has conquered. And so we thank you, Lord, that this season shows us that. It points us to that truth. May we never forget that, O Lord. And as we sing, as we worship May we do so mindful of that full reality that, Jesus, you are Lord, you are Savior. We await you, but we know you've come. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.